0: Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We are stepping into a brand new book today. And uh, wow, we had a long journey through the book of Genesis And we are stepping into a brand new book today, and as I had told you, stepping into a gospel. I didn't tell you which gospel, but here it is, the announcement. We are stepping into the book of Matthew. And uh, you're probably wondering, why Matthew? What's uh, so special about this book? Well, when you break down the four gospels, when you look at them, you really have uh, Mark. It is the shortest gospel, um, but it is written specifically to the Jewish reader. Then you have Luke. Luke is a doctor and he writes more from a historical view and uh, he is writing to the Gentiles. And really the book of Luke is the first part of his gospel and the second part of that gospel is the book of Acts. And so you have Luke writing Luke and you have him writing Acts. And literally that is one giant story. You can read it all the way through. Then you have John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, He was in close relationship with the Lord, but we kind of see a book that is more based around doctrine and theology, the deity of Christ, and he is writing these things to the reader that they might believe on him, kind of writing to the non believer. Um, And so I chose Matthew because it really is written to the Jew and the Gentile, and it covers more topics and more things. It is more comprehensive than any other gospel in the writings of Christ. And I'm hoping that you will get a full worldview from Jesus. And that is why I have titled this series, Jesus' Worldview. Jesus' Worldview. I heard of a story of a time when a guy came to the Lord and he said, Lord, you know, I was thinking about this and I remembered and thought, you know, you own all the cattle on a thousand hills and so... I wanted to ask you a couple questions. Would that be okay? He says, yes. He says, Lord, do you own all of time? Like, are you outside of time? Like, is a a day like a thousand years to you? Is a thousand years like a day to you? He says, yes. Well, like, is one second like a million years to you? Again, because you're outside of time. He said, yeah, one second's like a million years. A million years is like a second, the Lord replied to him. The guy scratches his head a little more and says, well, Lord, it is like a penny like a million dollars to you and a million dollars like a penny to you since you own it all? Um, it's all the same, right? And he says, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I own everything, so it's all the same to me. So you're saying, again, a second is like a million years and a penny is like a million dollars? The Lord says, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. So he looks at the Lord and says, Lord, then can I have a penny? And he smiles at the Lord and the Lord says, Let me think about that. Um, Yes, you can have a penny. Just a second. Just a second. A million years in time waiting to get that penny. He thought he had the Lord getting that million bucks from him. Time. Provision. History. Really, when you step back and you view and look, watch this, from God's angle, you see him up to something, trying to accomplish something. And this is a world view, lens, and idea. When you are looking through the lens of God's eyes to see how he views the earth, how he views society, how he views family, how he views the marriage, how he views work, how he views life, what is this all about? I titled this series Jesus Worldview and maybe you're asking why because I am noticing more and more in the church that people who believe in Jesus don't exactly believe in his worldview many times sometimes when you look at what they believe you're like wait a minute you said that you believe in Jesus and that you're a Christian, how in the world can you have this worldview? Maybe as I'm talking, you're thinking to yourself, what is a worldview anyways? Why do you keep using this word? I don't fully understand it. I looked up this term worldview and the seven major worldviews uh, that we see in the world today. There was an article that popped up on Google. uh, It was a blog. And they broke it down and I thought it was, it was neat and I thought it came together pretty well for a potentially secular perspective. Listen to this, the seven major worldviews. It says, everyone has his or her own views and beliefs about certain things. A person may be educated or uneducated, liberal or conservative, rich or poor, non-believing or God-fearing, but all people act and live in certain ways because they are guided by a particular worldviews. A worldview is simply the total of our beliefs about the world, the big picture, that directs our daily decisions and activities. There are seven major worldviews, namely theism, the belief in one God as creator of the universe, atheism, no God, atheism, no God, or the belief or lack of belief in any uh, God or deity. Pantheism is that God is everything and everything is God. Panentheism, the universe is part of God, but not all of God. Deism, the belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator who does not intervene in the universe. Um, Finite godism, uh, a belief in a deity that is limited. And then polytheism, the belief in or worship of more than one God, believing in many gods. People with these views have different beliefs, about how they see life and the world at large. Worldview is like colored glasses. You ever put on colored uh, lenses of sunglasses? You put on a yellow, you put on a blue, you put on the red lens, and all of a sudden everything becomes red, or everything becomes blue, or everything becomes yellow. It's it's The worldview is like colored glasses. It colors everything at which we look. It is a grid through which one views all of life. As such, it helps form our thoughts, values, and decisions. The tragedy is that most people do not even know what their worldview is, how they got it, and how important it is in their lives. I remember hearing this word worldview back in, I guess I was in high school, um, heading out of high school, and I was like, worldview? What is that? What does that even mean? And I didn't know what my worldview was. I didn't know what if I had one and I didn't know how to identify it. You see, most people's worldviews are shaped by their family, friends, culture, or the culture they choose to run with. Most people don't know why they believe what they believe or why they live by certain moral laws and not others. You're like, well, you're supposed to do this. Well, why? Well, because um, my professor said so because my dad said so, because the people that I run with, these my friends and the the culture that uh, they hold to, they think that's right and so I think that's probably a good thing to do too. Most people have not sat down to figure out why they are thinking in the direction they are thinking. Why do you think that way in that direction and why do you stay in that lane? What if someone challenged your thinking? Would it hold up to the arguments? You got to understand that the way you think is the way you live. So whatever's going on in here and the way things have been built is the way that you will live and the way that you will function in real time and that will be your worldview. Well, I don't know what's going on inside of there. You only do, but maybe you haven't mapped it out. Yes, maybe you haven't organized the thoughts to figure out what your worldview is. I will tell you that my worldview is governed by a God. Who has created the universe and given it purpose and meaning. He has set the universe to obey laws. He has made humans to worship and enjoy him forever and to enjoy the playground of the earth given to them. All of creation is made to declare his glory and to live in his ways by loving him and loving one another. This worldview is the lens in which I filter everything. God is king of the universe and we are his people. His way to live is the best way. And when we step outside of those ways, destruction comes. And that is why our earth is in shambles. The answer is for all of creation to turn back to the God who made them. How? by believing in His Son, Jesus Christ, and His Gospel, who came to the earth to die for our sins, which we have done against each other and against the God who made us and bring us back to the way things were supposed to be. God made us to be in relationship with Him, relationship with everybody on the earth, in love, in deep community and society, To subdue and enjoy the earth that he has created for us. We are to live in relationship with. That's the whole shebang. That's what this universe is all about. That is my worldview. And that is the lens in which I see everything. Now, if you are an atheist and you remove God. And say, there is no God. Well, then there is no purpose. There is no mind behind all of this. There is no reasoning behind all of this. There is no deity. There is nothing out there. We are just floating on a rock. We are just a bunch of cells made up, somehow formed together and just going through life and nothing really matters. Anyone can see nothing really matters. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, right? The, The great Freddie Mercury singing this. I can't sing anywhere near like him, his five octave vocals or whatever, but it was a joke. Nothing really matters. Your morality doesn't matter. You can hurt people, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter why, we're just surviving. Survival of the fittest, man. You're in my way, get out of my way, I gotta survive. Why would we love anybody? Why would we help anybody? Just to benefit ourselves, yes, potentially. But really when there is no rules, no laws, There is no mind. There is no reason for any of this. There is no purpose in the universe that leads to great darkness and great depression. And we turn ourselves over to our own selfish ambitions. And we create our own law. And we create ourselves as God. And we rule our own universe. And we do whatever we want. And we will push anyone out of the way to get what we want. After all, we're just animals running around a rock trying to survive. You see, that worldview breaks down quickly. It doesn't work in real time. Everything from government to society, family, and marriage is filtered through the lens of God and what he thinks. This is the theistic worldview. And I would take it a step further and say I do not hold to simply a theistic worldview, but a Christian worldview, a Jesus worldview. I look through the lens of Christ. Jesus came to the earth to show us humans how to live the way our God in heaven wants us to and to save us from the sin that stops us from doing so. Let me say that again. Jesus came to the earth to show humans how to live the way our God in heaven wants us to and to save us from the sin that stops us from doing so. That is what this series is all about, Seeing Through Jesus' Eyes seeing what Jesus thinks about all these issues around us. There's a lot of issues going on in the world, and there's a lot of debate going on everywhere. And my first question to people as soon as they say, well, this is the way it's supposed to be, and this is what I think is true, I always say, well, why? What, what gives you the corner block on truth? Why should we believe you, and why should we believe your opinion? Why why do you get to come and say these things and rant about this or say that on? What gives you the corner block to truth? What substantiates your truth? What is your premise? What is your presupposition? And I always challenge that because say, well, I heard it online. Well, my teacher, my professor said it in college. Well, what makes them the corner block on truth? What makes the media the corner block on truth? I know who has the corner block on truth. It is God. And it is revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. For he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. And his ideas and worldview makes more sense than anything else in the universe. And that is why I adopt it. Our introduction to the book of Matthew, we see this disciple of Jesus, who had spent three years with the Lord, writing down everything that he can remember About what happened with the Lord. If you give an okay introduction on a book, the book will tell the story itself. We need some background and settings and some understanding of what's happening in this book. The Gospel of Matthew is one of the synoptic Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which describe events from a similar point of view, synoptic Gospels, those three are from a similar point of view. But they contrast with John. John comes from a different perspective of doctrine, theology, focused on deity, and again, trying to convince those who are non-believers to believe on Jesus. Each gospel is a book written about the life of Jesus from a different perspective. Some of you didn't know that. Well, a lot of you Bible students are like, how does, doesn't everyone know that? No, they don't. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one is the story of Jesus written about the story of all the ministry that he did, written by disciples. Um, They are the first four books in the New Testament. The Bible is broken up into two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew is the author of this book, and he is self-identified as a tax collector. Yeah, the writer of this book was a tax collector. Yeah, he was the jerk who would show up at your door and knock on your door to collect taxes. Or he would have a booth set up there in the middle of town where he would keep a list of names and what you owed to the government. But remember, he became one of the 12 apostles after Jesus called him to leave everything he had and follow him. Matthew, on the spot, listened and obeyed. He was called Levi first. And the Lord Jesus called him to follow him, to leave his tax booth and follow him. It's found in Luke 5, verse 27. It says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed the Lord Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love this. This shows the heart of Matthew he left everything to follow Jesus, and he immediately invited all of his tax collector buddies and sinners to come over to the house and have a meal with Jesus, the one who showed him everything about his life, about his heart, the one who saved him. And he invited him into the house, and the Pharisees are all ticked off. What are those dirty tax collectors and sinners doing with the rabbi? And Jesus says, I'm sorry. I ain't got time with you squeaky clean on the outside religious leaders. I'm hanging out with the sinners who have interest in me and want to come into relationship with me. You guys are fake. You guys are fake on the outside. The heart is far from me. You praise me with your lips, Jesus would say to them, but the the heart is far from God. Lip service. We have a lot of religious fakes in this day and age. They don't desire to truly seek the Lord. The Lord says, I'd rather dine with sinners who are coming to repentance than religious Pharisees who are squeaky cling on the outside, but have no true desire to submit to God. Matthew's main purpose in writing this book is to show Jesus as Messiah and King of the Jews. His signature phrase throughout this book is kingdom of heaven. It shows up 32 times in this book and nowhere else in scripture. His signature move, the kingdom of heaven. 32 times, pretty cool point. This book was written just around 20 to 30 years after Jesus ascended off the earth. So again, Jesus was on the earth doing his ministry for three years. Then he died, was buried, rose from the dead, ascended uh, off the earth. Yeah, he boosted off the earth, Acts chapter 1. And after that, about 20, 30 years later, after all this ministry took place, Matthew starts to write down all that he can remember. Matthew lived with Jesus for three years. He was with him day and night in his public ministry. He was taught personally and trained by the Lord Jesus. And Matthew gives the most robust view of the Lord Jesus, in my opinion, with the Gospels. And that's why I picked this book. We will see the Lord cover so many topics and talk from so many different angles as we get to see a Jesus worldview. A quick overview of this book. Many, here are many of the things that we will cover and look at. A little movie trailer. Are you ready? We will see today his genealogy, his lineage. We will see his birth. We will see the Lord step into ministry at 30 years old. We will see his baptism, his great temptation with the devil himself. And we will watch the Lord call his 12 disciples to follow him. We will see his great sermon on the mount the sermon of all sermons where he describes who the Christ follower is. He covers many issues of life and brings clarity to the law of God and what God really desires, the spirit of the law. We will see him do many miracles and wonders to those you would never think he would notice. He stops for the person that no one notices. We will watch him send out his disciples into ministry commissioning them to do the work He describes in detail what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. We will see him combat against the religious leaders of that day and all their empty, fake religion. We will see the Lord explain parables, stories which bring forth spiritual meaning about the kingdom of heaven. We will see him feed the 5,000 in one setting. Then we will see him feed another 4,000 in another setting. We will watch him walk on water. He will be rejected by his own people in his own town. He will predict his own death and lay out the future instruction for his church. He will give lessons on subjects from divorce to celibacy, equality in the kingdom to humility on earth, paying taxes to the government, he'll talk about. He'll explain the two greatest commandments. He will teach his disciples how to pray. He will challenge and condemn the temple abuse and practices by the religious leaders. He will tell his disciples about the future and end times and how to be ready for his return. We will see Judas, one of the disciples, betray the Lord. He will be crucified. Three days later, he will rise from the dead. We will see him give the great commission and send off his apostles into the world to spread the good news and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe what he taught them those three years of ministry. That's a lot, huh? Yeah. You get the full download. There's a lot to cover, but you will have a full understanding of Jesus and his worldview when we are done with this book. There is no question As to what position the Lord stands on and rejects. And I am shocked, really, at how many people call themselves Christians yet do not align themselves with the teachings of Christ. The truth is that person is not a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is one who follows the Christ. They follow his teaching and walk in his obedience. They have made him Lord over their lives, plain and simple. Pastor Josh. But what do I do as a Christian if I come across teachings of the Lord Jesus that I don't agree with? You change your mind. Hello? You change your mind. You're not God. You're not the Lord. You're not the Lord Jesus. And if you are following him, then you're following all of his teachings. We don't pick and choose things that we like. He's not a buffet. He is the Lord. And we submit ourselves to his ways and his teaching. And I will not apologize for any of that. If you have a problem with Christ's teachings, then you have a problem with me. Because I'm going to stand firm in the things of Christ and what he has said. And so when people challenge through the book, I'm excited to discuss and talk about these things with you. But you know what I'm going to do over and over? What does the text say? What does the text say? What did Jesus say? What is it? You tell me what Jesus said. Did he say something different? I can see clearly he's saying this. Do you agree with Jesus or not? That's the conversation. That's the end of the conversation. Look, they killed Jesus for what he said back in that day. Was he a jerk? No. He was the nicest guy to ever walk the earth. He's the most humble man to ever walk the earth, and they murdered him for it. So I don't care that it offends LA. I don't care that it offends our culture. I don't care that it offends our nation. I don't care if I lose friends over it. I don't care if we lose people in the church over it. We will look at what Christ has said and anchor in his words, for that is my calling. That is what I am called to do as a pastor, to teach you Christ's commands. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all that I commanded, Jesus said to us. That's my job. And so I hope you'd be okay with that. I hope you'd not be mad at me for it. If you get offended here and there, that's okay. I get offended all the time. That's what God does. We are so vastly far from him and in rebellion against him that when we see how good and perfect and awesome he is, at first sight, it shocks us. It's hard to receive, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he opens our hearts. He gives us new minds, new hearts, new eyes, new ears, and as we we hear his word, it may convict us deeply, but it grows us quickly. It refreshes our spirits. It aligns us in the right way of life. This is the book of Matthew. Today, we will see that all of history has been designed around the Lord Jesus and His coming to the earth. Yes, the Lord Jesus is the centerpiece of all time, space, and matter. I thought it was the Big Bang. No, that's just God banging the universe into existence so that He could create a people and bring forth a Savior that bears His image and shines His glory to the universe. His coming to the earth To be born of a virgin and die for the sins of mankind is the centerpiece so we can be brought into relationship with the God who made us. It is the greatest news in all of history that people can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another through Jesus Christ. We are in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses together um, through the genealogy so you can get an idea of what's going on. And uh, I'll jump down to a couple other verses, and then we'll start to open this book together. Matthew chapter 1. You can stand for the reading of God's Word if you'd like to there in your home, wherever you're at. We always stand for the reading of God's Word to pay honor to Him. Remember whose word we are reading, not mine. My opinions don't matter. It's what Jesus has said. It's what God has said in His Word. And listen, there is only one interpretation. What? What? I hear all kinds of interpretations. Sorry, there's only one. And it's the authorial intent. It is the intent of the author writing, what has Matthew said? What is he trying to say to us? Whatever he is trying to say, that is the intent. Oh, what you mean is not there's a lot of interpretations. You meant there's many applications. Yes, there is. There's one interpretation, thousands of applications on how it applies to our lives. We are defined the authorial intent in the text, and then apply this to our lives, my life, and then your life is different, and then someone else's life. The meaning stays the same, but it applies in different ways. Very important. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, "...the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham." Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Does that sound familiar? Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amabitadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Jos- Josiah, the father of uh, Jehoniah, his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Skip down to verse 15. Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations Then from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this genealogy. A lot of names, a lot of history. And we pray now that you would begin to open our eyes to see your plans and your ways unfold in the text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew opens this book with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Many of you are like, what's the deal with all the names, man? Like who just like starts writing a bunch of names? Well, uh, the Jews have a very specific recording of their heritage and their lineage and what tribe and family you came from. And uh, they have a very, very specific lineage. Why? Because it speaks to Messiah as to what tribe you were connected to. And Matthew opens his book with a genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Yes, we get to see where he came from, his bloodline. Um, I don't think I even told you what the title of the message is today, uh, but it's a perfect time for that. If you're taking notes, it is a bloodline of grace. A bloodline of grace. Verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is the same phrase, watch this, that Moses used in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. This same exact phrase. Matthew takes the phrase from Genesis 5 and inserts it into Matthew chapter 1. What is Genesis chapter 5? You remember, Bible students, it's the great genealogy of Adam to Noah. And he says, this is the genealogy of He takes the same phrase and puts it this is the genealogy of the lord jesus christ the jew knows this hebrew phrase they understand it well point number one if you're taking notes the radical fulfillments of jesus christ a lot is pointed out in the first verse to the jewish reader we're going to look at all these radical fulfillments that have been filled by the lord jesus christ as messiah First, the reference to the genealogy from Adam to Noah in Genesis, this is huge. Then his name, Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christos, or Hebrew, Jeshua, or Yeshua, which means the Lord is salvation, Christ, which means anointed one, or Messiah. It is the identical word from Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, the Hebrew word mashiach not mashiach it's it's yak is the word and this is the word messiah and this is the exact word so christ is not jesus last name okay it was like jesus christ christ is not his last name when people yell jesus christ is you you," is a curse word i say amen amen thank you he is lord yes uh i just steal that from him and give the lord praise Uh, Christ is not his last name. It is a title. So the full understanding of the name, his name, Jesus, Jeshua, or Yeshua, Christos, the Greek, Messiah, is this. The Lord is salvation, Jesus, Christ, Messiah. The Lord is salvation, Messiah, anointed one. This is his name and title hidden right there. This is the genealogy, Genesis 5, of the Lord is salvation, the Messiah. This is, reveal- this is enticing to the Jewish reader. They're like, what? You're going to point out the genealogy of the salvation of the Lord, Messiah? Okay, let's see what you got, Matthew. He is called in this same verse, all of this is packed into verse 1. He is called the son of David which is a huge claim for the Jew looking for Messiah. The son of David is the Messiah. This is the phrase, the term used over and over again. He is also called the son of Abraham. Not only the son of David, but the son of Abraham. The Jewish reader knows that Messiah will come from the bloodline of both Abraham and David. You got to have both. The tribe of Judah. What's important to understand is Jesus wasn't the only person to have the lineage connected to both Abraham and David. There were many others, not thousands, but many others. For instance, his brothers, his four brothers also have the same lineage, bloodline, but also those listed from verse 6 to verse 16 in our text all have the same bloodline. But what sets Jesus apart was his whole life. To whom he was born how he was born, the time and when he was born, his perfect life, his miracles, his teachings, his death, burial, and resurrection. It is all of these things put together that point to him being Messiah. And here are the greatest arguments for him being Messiah. First, he would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. He would be a descendant of King David, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. Messiah would be a descendant of King Solomon, 1 Chronicles 22:9 Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem Micah chapter 5 verse 2 Messiah would arrive before the destruction of the second temple Solomon's temple Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 to 27 Messiah would present himself by riding in on a donkey Zechariah 9:9 9, 9. Messiah would be tortured to death psalm chapter 22 messiah's life would match a particular description including suffering silence at his arrest and trial death and burial in a rich man's tomb resurrection this is all isaiah 52 13 to uh isaiah 53 verse 12. in regard to his lineage birthplace time lifestyle and lifestyle jesus matched the messianic expectations of the hebrew scriptures Jesus also, in his teachings in the New Testament, claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God, and he claimed to forgive sin. You can't claim to forgive sin. You can't also call God your Father or claim to be the Son of God. You are either a crazy person, I'm the Son of God. What? You're crazy, or you're telling the truth. You can't claim to forgive people's sins. You walk around on the street, forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Forgiven, forgiven. I, I have the power to forgive your sins. Would you like your sins to be forgiven? Forgiven and forgotten. You can't do this. Only God can do that. You're either crazy or telling the truth. He also goes on to use the title of God. I am. He calls himself the great I am, which God said to Moses. Moses. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, I and my father are one. He claimed to be God's son. What happens when the father passes on the reins of the business to the son? He becomes, he is God. He has the very essence and nature of God in his veins. The son of God, he is God. He proved his claims through miracles. Jesus told the people of that day, the sign that what I say is true All these things that I've said to you that people are all ticked off about, the sign that what I say is true is I will rise myself from the dead. I will raise myself from the dead. No human in history would make such a crazy claim. Everybody would be at the funeral. This is what sets Jesus apart from every religious guru on the planet. No one has done what he has done. That's why no one has impacted the earth like he has done. Mathematician and astronomer, Professor Peter Stoner, made the statement that the chances of just eight prophecies like these being fulfilled by Jesus Christ and them coming true is a 1 in 10 to the 17th power chance. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. A 1 in that many chance. That would be the equivalent to covering the whole state of Texas with silver dollars. Two feet deep. Then expecting a blindfolded man to walk across the state on the very first try and find the one silver dollar that you marked and threw out there. A blindfolded man walks out there. He has one chance to grab the silver dollar. It is a one in ten to the 17th power chance that he would pick up that silver dollar. That's only if Jesus fulfilled eight prophecies. Now back to Stoner's illustration. Using only... 48 of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled it was calculated that the chances of one person fulfilling By sheer chance 48 of these prophecies. Are you ready? It is one It is one in ten to the 157th power a one with hundred and fifty seven zeros behind it That's the number one in that many chance that Jesus could fulfill 48 of those prophecies This would be like taking electrons, this is how many electrons, 10 uh, to the 157 power, this many electrons, taking them, electron is very small, and pressing them into a solid ball. This ball made entirely of electrons that big would pretty much fill our entire galaxy and bleed into the universe of electrons. Now, you would mark, once again, one electron, throw it out there into the universe, and a man gets to blindfold himself and has one chance to pick the right electron. That is the chance of Jesus Christ fulfilling 48 of those prophecies. Do you know how many are claimed that he fulfilled? Over 300 scriptures. Over 300 scriptures. This is incredible. Professor Stoner says to the extent then that we know this blindfolded man cannot pick out the marked electron. We know the Bible is inspired. This is not merely evidence. It is proof of the Bible's inspiration by God. Proof so definite that the universe is not large enough to hold the evidence. Professor Stoner then made the comment that any man who rejects Christ as Son of God is rejecting a fact proved, perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. The mathematician. Who says these types of things? Dr. James Allen wrote a poem in 1926 called One Solitary Life. You hear me read it on Easter and in Christmas. The end of it says this, Today Jesus Christ is the central figure of the human race. And the leader of mankind's progress, all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. How in the world has he impacted everyone in the universe in just three years of public ministry? What have you done in the last three years? (laughs) Can you believe it? It was a miracle. It is a miracle. He has fulfilled. And Matthew is pointing this out. Opening statement. I got something to say. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Point number two, if you're taking notes, this is a bloodline of grace. Notice who is in the bloodline of Jesus. Did you catch it? Verse 2, we have Abraham. We have Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. Do you remember? He is the one who had his wife lie to cover his back. Remember? Got himself in all kinds of trouble, not trusting to the Lord. Had to be saved by the Lord again. Verse 2 also points out Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver. We also see Judah, the one who helped sell his brother Joseph into slavery. In verse 4, we see Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law Judah into sleeping with her as a prostitute to get her pregnant because he would not find her a new husband after she was widowed. Verse 5, we see Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, who, remember, helped the spies flee the city and get out. We see Ruth. In the genealogy, she is a Moabite woman. We're gonna look at that in just a second. David, King David, the one who took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and killed him. Bathsheba is in the bloodline as well, who bathed on the roof of her house to catch the eye of the king. Then we have Solomon, the man of material things, riches, and thousands of women. What about the wicked kings mentioned? Did you catch those? Rehoboam, Ajah, and Ahaz. How in the world did they get in the bloodline? Wicked kings. Family, this is a bloodline of grace. This genealogy is made up of sinners. This would offend the Jewish reader at the highest level. What? What are these people doing in there? The next thing we see is the genealogy also has women listed in it. This would also offend the reader of that day, for the bloodline generally was listed through the father of the home. If you read through Genesis 5, remember Adam to Noah, and many other genealogies in the Bible, you will see this. You do not see women listed. Very, very few times we see it happen. Matthew chooses to highlight the great women of faith involved, which of course was taught to him by the Lord Jesus. Who told him, Matthew, a tax collector, about the genealogy of the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus taught him. Matthew, come here. I want to show you the bloodline. I want to show you all the people that I've redeemed and brought into the fold. And I want you to highlight the women. Very important, powerful people of faith who were outcasts in their society, but taken in by God and proclaimed as heroes." Amazing, by the work of the Lord. But let's take it a step further. The greatest offense, are you ready? In the genealogy, the bloodline of grace, notice that the genealogy is also made up of Gentiles. Gentiles, what? The Jewish reader would be appalled. Yes, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanite women. A race of people, the Israelites were forbidden to marry. What in the world are they doing in the bloodline? How did they sneak in? Ruth was a Moabite woman. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. What are these women and these Gentiles doing in the bloodline? Tamar tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. What, what if we found somebody in the church? Uh, some, somebody who comes in the church and tricks their father or mother-in-law into sleeping with them by disguising themselves? This would be all over the church. Talk about gossip. Would we choose the would we choose the prostitute on the street? I don't know, down in the red light district. We go down there and find the best prostitute and choose them to be the one that helps God's people defeat Jericho. And then weave that woman into the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many would pick up a stone to stone her for what she has done, condemn her. And the Lord says, Look, she's broken. She's repented. She's done more than you, she is more righteous then I, Judah, would say. How did Ruth get into the bloodline if a Moabite was forbidden? Forbidden. Up to the 10th generation, there is no way they're entering the assembly of the Lord. Boaz would choose Ruth. Boaz, a picture of Jesus, would choose Ruth and redeem her. And bring her into his fold. Amazing. It's called grace, family. It's called grace, undeserved favor. It is when you do not deserve it that you get favor poured upon you, blessings poured upon you that you do not deserve. Let me ask you this family, legacy, how did you get into the bloodline of the Lord Jesus? What are you doing in the bloodline? For by his blood, he has washed our sins away. He has made us, though our sins be as red as scarlet, he has made them as white as snow. He has grafted us into the family tree. He has said, once who were enemies are now my sons and daughters. How did this happen? I know it's called grace. He found you. He chose you. When you were not finding and pursuing him, Do you ever wonder, do you ever remember that just that moment when all of a sudden you started thinking about God randomly? Why did you all of a sudden get pulled in the direction of God? Were you clever? Were you brilliant? No, no, it was on that day when maybe you were in great despair that all of a sudden the thought of God came to you. It was when you were not thinking about him but running from him in rebellion that all of a sudden he showed up. It was maybe when you were not born that he put you in a Christian family to be raised by Christian parents who would teach you the commands of Christ and you would come into relationship with him. That's a grace that you were born into the family, into the bloodline. John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. Because you... We're not pursuing me, I was pursuing you, praise God. Rahab would have never thought in a million years, now she's standing in heaven and cannot believe that her name is sitting here in the text. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Ephesians 2.1, just listen, let this wash over you. Nine verses, let them wash over you. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. ...in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You were following that, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature childrens of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. by grace you have been saved, and raised us and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. You just came home one day and there was a giant gift under the Christmas tree. What is this? It's a gift. From what? For what? From who? It's from the Lord. The gift of salvation. The gift of being in His lineage, in His bloodline, in His story, in His family. 1 Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy say that, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of who I am the worst. Jesus came into the world to do this very thing. To save sinners who are the worst. Paul says, of who I am the worst. He saved me and I am the worst. Thus, he came to save the worst sinners. And Matthew would sit back and say, I can't even believe I'm writing this gospel. I was a tax collector. I had no interest in God. I was running in living in sin and he called me to himself. He'd grafted me into his story. Praise God. Look at this lineage of sinners. Look at this bloodline of sinners. Poured grace upon them, redeemed them. 1 Corinthians 1.27 Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. He chooses what the world does not choose. He chooses what the religious will not choose. He chooses... People like you, people like me. When I look at my own life, I am shocked and surprised that God would use me, a sinner saved by grace, to minister His Word to people. Why me? Why me? What have I done? Nothing. Nothing to deserve this undeserved grace. The Lord's genealogy reflects His plan and gospel. This text reflects his plan and gospel. He takes broken people, broken things of the world, and makes them beautiful. He sneaks people into the bloodline who the world would despise and say, No, you're a Moabite. You're out. No, you're a prostitute, Rahab. You're out. David, you killed a man. You murdered him, and you took his wife. You're out. Solomon, you were wicked. You are out. You're not staying in the bloodline. Jesus says, no, this is my bloodline, this is my heritage, sinners saved by grace. Praise God. He sneaks people into the bloodline who the world would despise. He gives favor to the poor and lowly. He loves sinners, redeems them, and makes them his own. I can't believe it. It's amazing. This is the worldview of our King and His kingdom. It's called redemption. He pays a priceless price for people others consider trash. He then fills them with his spirit, redeems them, and makes them beautiful people for his glory. That is what he does. That's his story. That is what he's doing in the universe. How do you view people? Let me ask you do you look through Jesus' eyes when you see those people? How do you see them? Jesus said in Luke 6:32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Merciful, be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful, Jesus says. He is kind to the ungrateful. He is kind to the evil, it says. This genealogy proves that Jesus is Messiah and that He lets sinners, Gentiles, and outcasts into the family. Maybe you're sitting back today feeling condemned. Like you don't deserve to be in the family of God. You know what the Lord Jesus says to you today? Come to me, all ye that are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, you see your sin, you're a perfect candidate. Come on over, sit at my table, dine with me. The Pharisee says, yeah, but they did this and this and this and this and this. He says, I know. And they acknowledge their sin and you don't. Thus, I will give them grace and favor. I will grant them repentance and faith. And they will walk with me all the days of their life. This is the God we serve. This is the lens of grace. This is the worldview of the gospel Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. This is the Christian worldview. Get it right. Don't miss this. Walk with Jesus as he unfolds this worldview. Through the text, John chapter 1, verse 12, I'll close with this scripture. But to all who did receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The only prerequisite for those in the Old Testament to be in the bloodline, to be a part of his story, was to receive him and believe in his name. And he, they, be, they were given the right to be children of God. I want to give you that opportunity to become a child of God today. I want to pray for you that you would believe on him with all of your heart, that you would turn to him with all of your being and walk with him all the days of your life. A bloodline of grace... It's shocking when you look at the details who's sitting there in the text. Praise God. He has let us sneak in the back door by His grace and mercy. We'd never make it to heaven without Him. Let's pray. Let's ask God to grant us favor once again as we close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your never-ending grace. We can never use it up. It's a fountain that never stops pouring. It's living water. We can drink of it forever. It's the tree of life. And Lord, by simply believing on you, believing in you, in your plan, in what you have said, what you have done, just believing you at your word from Abraham to David, you saved millions. And you are still saving today. And Lord, we confess our sin to you now. And we choose to acknowledge that we have done wrong against you and we, we are guilty of it. And Lord, we confess our sin and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to turn away from that sin and to dig into deeper relationship with you by believing that you paid for that sin on the cross And that you have raised yourself from the dead and want to raise us to life as well, giving us life in that abundantly as we believe in your forgiveness, as we believe in your resurrection and life. We repent to you with all of our hearts and make you Lord and Savior over our lives. We're not going to be fake Christians. We're not going to be lukewarm Christians in this society. We choose to take on your grace, your mercy, your view, your judgments, your statutes, your culture on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, grant that to us. Please put that in our hearts. We turn our lives over to you now. We do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining with us to worship today. We have entered into this first book, this first chapter of this book of Matthew. And I'm so excited about Jesus' worldview, seeing his worldview, and what it looks like here in L.A. And I'm excited to chip away at it one week at a time. I want to encourage you to read ahead and to prepare and to come ready to study God's Word and come with questions, and hopefully I'll answer those questions right there in the text. It's going to be a great journey together. I want to encourage you this week as we go, family, please. Graft, adopt, bless other people into the bloodline of Christ. Let him use you to throw out the gospel and the rope of salvation, pointing others to the Lord Jesus, believing that he might save them and redeem them and bring them close to himself. Let's be a people who are full of the gospel of Jesus Christ, full of his view. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May his face shine upon you. I pray that His worldview would manifest more in you than ever before, that you would hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.